This is the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 20 of the Illumina Genomics Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Broman, and I'm a scientific liaison here at Illumina. Every podcast, I interview genomics experts who are shaping our understanding of science and nature. In the United States, a rare disease is one that affects less than 200,000 people at any given time. Although individually rare, there are literally thousands of different rare diseases, and up to 30 million Americans and 30 million Europeans are currently living with a rare disease. Most rare diseases are caused by changes in genes or chromosomes, and many of these genetic changes can be passed from generation to generation. Identifying the causal gene sequences, or variants, can be extremely difficult. Next Generation Sequencing, or NGS, has provided scientists with a powerful and rapid tool for genetic analysis. And NGS has also dramatically improved the quest for diagnostic and prognostic information for rare diseases. Today, I'm at the Genomic Medicine Institute of the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, and I'm talking with Dr. Karis Eng. Dr. Eng is the Hardis Endowed Chair of Cancer Genomic Medicine at the Cleveland Clinic, and the founding chair of Cleveland Clinic's Genomic Medicine Institute, and founding director of its clinical arm, the Center for Personalized Genetic Healthcare. Karis and her lab seek to understand the genetic risks that link Cowden syndrome to cancer risk. And her laboratory identified the phosphatase and tensin homolog, or P10 gene, as the first causative gene for Cowden syndrome. We started our interview by discussing genomics in medicine. So hi, Karis, and welcome to the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So, Karis, you have an amazing CV with literally pages and pages of academic and clinical achievements and honors and awards. And a lot of that work that you've done has been in the realm of personalized medicine or genomic medicine. I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners what you mean by personalized medicine. And then also specifically, how does genomics or other omics-based technologies fit into that picture? Well, first, thank you. You're very kind. I just hope that all my work is applicable to human health and disease, because that's what it's about. I am a translational researcher even before it was fashionable. That's what my mentors tell me. (laughs) So what is genomic medicine? What's personalized medicine? In fact, what's precision medicine, right? Right, that's the term of the the day. Many people have different definitions, Mm -hmm. and I guess people are trying to say that personalized medicine and precision medicine are interchangeable, so let's pretend they are just for ease. Okay. P-medicine, shall we say? Sure. And often people are confused, and they think that genomic medicine equals personalized healthcare or precision medicine, and I think you've heard that, but that's not true. In precision medicine... Diagnostic testing is used to select the optimal therapy based on a patient's genetics, molecular, or cellular analysis. Genomics has had a profound impact on our understanding of the molecular basis of disease and on precision medicine. But Karis explained that genomics is part of a larger story when it comes to precision medicine. Precision medicine and personalized medicine uses any objective means to risk stratify 
people, patients, health risk, and then select prophylaxis, prevention, treatment by the substratification. Genomics is just one objective means. So in effect, many folks, many docs practice precision medicine without knowing. I think it's very arrogant to say that genomics is the only precision medicine. It is a precision medicine. It's using genomics, and I call it all of omics, anywhere from genomics all the way to proteomics, to risk stratify, and then to select behavior modification, even prevention, prophylaxis, um, high-risk surveillance, early detection, and cure. Karis founded the Genomic Medicine Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and after visiting there, I can tell you that it's an amazing space, combining clinical and research genomics experts in the same facility. She described her vision for the Institute and why combining medical genetics and genomics has been so transformative for translational medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Twelve years ago, there wasn't even much of a practice of plain old medical genetics here, if you can believe it. And I was recruited by Dr. Toby Cosgrove and built what you see here. So this was an empty space, and I programmed the space as well to ensure that the wet labs are next to the dry labs. And when you came in, that looked like a checking desk. It is. That's where we see our <laughs> patients. And right at the end of that corridor is our biorepository. So you see that's already in the physical plant for genomics-based true translational medicine. So in addition to getting our researchers, we are physician scientists. I have also built out the Center for Personalized Genetic Healthcare, and you see that emblazoned there. And that is the clinical arm of the Genomic Medicine Institute that now has the comprehensive practice of all of genetics and genomic medicine. Now, what do I mean by that? In the United States, not necessarily in Europe, Medical genetics and genomics, which is what I guess we call ourselves these days, and it's just so balkanized. Genomics is genomics. So when I came here 12 years ago, I said it cannot be balkanized. You literally have no genomics or genetics. Let us take this opportunity to put everyone and everything that practices genetics and genomics under one roof. So it sits in here. Therefore, we can very easily go from bench to bedside. Do you see a benefit in having the the research and clinical side joined hand in hand in the you know in the same physical space absolutely absolutely because for some strange reason i've worked in other places where the clinical side is literally across the street and is as good as being five miles away really yeah this hand in gloves really is good for this iterative medicine cowden's syndrome is a rare inherited disease characterized by benign growths called hamartomas and Cowden's patients have a higher risk of developing breast and thyroid cancers. Karis and her team have been studying genetic predisposition to Cowden's syndrome for several years, and they were the first to discover variants in the P10 gene that increase risk for Cowden's. But Karis described how her first research interest was actually Poitz-Jaeger's syndrome, another rare genetic disorder characterized by development of benign hematomatous polyps in the GI tract. It is a funny story. (laughs) When I was in medical school, as a fourth-year medical student, I did a reading elective with one of my favorite attending physicians, Michael Blackstone, so gastroenterologist. And I was fascinated by Poitsieger's syndrome, hematoma polyposis, and in the end, I said, Dr. Blackstone, I'm going to find the Poitsieger's gene. Well, clearly I did not find the Poitsieger's gene, 
but I did find the Calvin syndrome gene. So, hey, a hematoma is a hematoma. So, seriously, now I've said, well, the hematomatous polyposis or even non polyposis syndromes are fascinating. They have no etiology at that time. Really? Yeah. No, I mean, P- that, P- P10 was the first hematoma wow. syndrome gene. It was the first phosphatase as a tumor suppressor in the germline gene. And if something hits every germ layer, I said it has to be important not just for cancer, but for development. And how true that rang in 2005 Absolutely. when I saw that autism macrocephaly. Voila. Autism spectrum disorders are a group of neurodevelopmental disorders characterized by deficits in social interaction and communication, as well as repetitive behavior. Autism has been associated with macrocephaly a condition in which the head is abnormally large, and P10 mutations have been reported in autism patients with significant macrocephaly. Karis talked about P10 variants in Cowden's and in cancer risk stratification. So one of the first things is, do they have mutations? What's the frequency? Is there a genotype-phenotype correlation? Not really. That's unfortunate. But then again, if someone has a P10 mutation versus a BRCA1 and 2 mutation versus an LKB1, that's risk stratification. You know what organs are involved. And because of our research and validated by others, we know what the cancers were. Because in the beginning, it was right, the breast thyroid cancer syndrome. Then when we did our very careful uh, longitudinal cohort studies, we found, oh, the breast cancer risk much higher than we thought, 85% lifetime risk. Wow. Yeah, thyroid cancer risk, not the 10%, but it's actually 35%. And oh, there's renal cancer risk too, and it's a strange histology. Endometrial cancer risk. And actually melanoma, we thought we'd never find that because it's common enough in the population, so it's hard to differentiate, but they do have a slight melanoma risk. In Cowden's like syndromes, the frequency of P10 mutations is lower, and Karis discussed her use of whole exome and whole genome sequencing to identify additional genes linked to Cowden's. When we actually accrued from the community versus very exaggerated cases, the P10 mutation frequency, instead of being 85%, was 25%. Because right, 85% is it's glaring, stonking, Cowden syndrome, big families. But when you mosh them all together and the Cowden-like as well, it drops to 25% frequency. It makes sense. So in the meantime, we took those with heavier burdens and used whole exome, whole genome sequencing, and have come up with quite a few other genes, anywhere from SDH variants, and they're not mutations, to SEC23B mutations, they are mutations. And if you add all those up, it's still about 50%. So there's still more out there. There's still more out there. So I'll have to go back and look at my exomes, and we'll have to bite the bullet one day and do more genomes, because you know it's in that non-coding region as well. And I suspect it's in the non-coding region of P10. So the whole genome approach, is that something that you're implementing here? Do you find, yes. you're, you find you're doing it more and more? And, more and more. And what, you know, what does it allow you to look at in terms of these variants that you can't get with an array-based approach or whole exome approach? It allows us to go into what I like to think of various enhances and even hidden axons and introns and promote the region. Because obviously the capture for the exomes doesn't go all that far in, and for the promoters, most of them are 500 base pairs upstream. So Karis is actively researching the human genome to better understand the risk of Cowden syndrome and increased cancer risk. But her work doesn't stop at human genomes. In fact, 
She and her team have recently begun to study the human microbiome and cancer. In a recent podcast interview, Dr. Ami Bhatt of Stanford University described the human microbiome. Um, we're surrounded by microorganisms in our environment, but of course we're also filled with microorganisms, predominantly in our gut, but also other interesting niches like our skin, etc. Many recent studies over the last 10 to 20 years have demonstrated that alterations in the composition of the microbiome are actually associated with poor outcomes in a variety of human diseases that range from allergy, asthma, all the way to cancer. Karis described her work on head and neck cancer and how microbiome communities were linked to clinical outcomes. We started looking at something very obvious first, where we said, okay, that spot must have bacteria, so the mouth. And eventually we traversed down to the gut, and so we took head and neck cancers as our model and started looking at microbiomics. And indeed, we do see differences in the microbiome, and we're lucky enough to have normal and tumor pairs and show that there are differences in the microbiome that actually correlate with stage of presentation, and especially lymph node status. So that was a pilot study. So then we corroborated that with a large several hundred uh, normal tumor pairs and found exactly the same thing, that the primary tumors that eventually metastasized actually had a different microbiome from those that remained stage 1 and 2. Karis collaborated with Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum, professor of dermatology at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. Together, they studied the oral metabolome of head and neck cancer patients. A metabolome is the complete set of chemicals present in a biological sample, and it's measured using various analytical chemistry techniques, like nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, or mass spectrometry. The next thing we did with my collaborator, Dr. Mahmoud Ghanoum, he's sitting at CASE, and it's a fruitful collaboration. Then we said, okay, let's look at the metabolome. These things are expensive. So <laughs> with a pilot of seven trios, normal tumor, oral wash, and we looked at the microbiome and the metabolome of the oral wash normal tumor and then compared it to the microbiome, and there were dramatic, dramatic differences. So we're about to go into a full-size grant so we can get a little bit more money so we can actually do the real, you know, independent large validation study. Lastly, I asked Karis to gaze into her crystal ball and tell me what the future of precision medicine looks like. She believes that integrating genomics with other omics technologies is going to be key to understanding cancer. She also believes that a better understanding of cancer risk will lead to better methods for cancer prevention. Omics inform P-medicine, <laughs> because it will be all of it in time, because it's still creaking away. I mean, genomics is structure part rules, of right, course, because we have right the most now. knowledge. Sure. Then the next part will be the epigenome, eventually all the way to you know transcriptome, all the way to the proteome. We're seeing, in my lab's using more and more proteomics, and we're not proteomics people. So we're creaking away. And it will have to be an integration in the cancer field. It'll have to be integration of germline somatic, of course, because right now the two fields, for some strange reason, are going like this. So we need to bring it back together. And then not just risk stratify, not just high-risk surveillance, I would like to see a safe prevention vaccine. Wouldn't that be much better? I mean, what a yeah. pain. Why not have a vaccine Yeah, that would or be. a magic probiotic pill? And then this is where pharmacogenomics comes in as well. 
not everyone will have the same magic pill of vaccine. So we are going into a rapid phase two expansion of my institute. We have an open search for free faculty positions in pharmacogenomics. So I'm taking us down that route. And we will open a search next year for six to eight more wow. faculty for integrative omics. And then we will have gene editing. And I'm preparing us for that. Dr. Eng, thank you very much for spending some time with us. And thanks for joining us on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Thank you. So whole exome and whole genome sequencing are allowing scientists to identify more of the genes and DNA sequence variants associated with rare diseases. Genomics and other omics-based approaches are helping scientists to better understand risk stratification and aiding in the practice of precision medicine. But that's all for now. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you won't miss any of our interviews with genomics experts. Join me next time when I'll be talking with Dr. Peter Skicheri, Assistant Professor of Genetics and Genome Sciences at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. We'll be discussing the role of epigenetics and the histone code in human health and disease here on the Illumina Genomics Podcast. Podcast.